What in the world? <laughs> that had to be the ultimate debacle of a show. Like, the, falling apart in slow motion. Everything from the girl, the chimpanzees, the Aladdin show. No, that, that I'll, I'll keep it in the light side. Yeah. That was <laughs> Welcome to episode 84 of the Bay Shed Podcast. My name is Ryan Roberts. What's up, everybody? What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 84 of the Bay Shed Podcast. This is another installment of Live at Lemur. This interview was recorded live at Lemur Music uh, in San Clemente, California. Stop by the website, lemurmusic.com. Everything you need for the double bass can be found at lemurmusic.com. And I want to thank the folks at Lemur Music for uh, hosting us. Hosting us? Yeah, I think hosting us. Letting us, letting us record. Letting us record there. Uh, it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun to sit and hang with Oscar. And then we went into the showroom and geeked out on bass a little bit. And I will be talking more about that shortly. All right. If you have a record to sell, if you have a single to sell, if you have creative property you would like to sell, check out Finay.com. You know, real talk, folks. You just make more money. <laughs> it is in favor of the artist. So it is a better situation, a better alternative to streaming and iTunes and other digital distribution platforms, check out Finay.com. Well, I'm talking about websites. I'm going to talk about my favorite website to manage a teaching studio. Blinklesson.app is an incredibly thorough website to manage all aspects of being a music educator. Teaching over Zoom is now a thing of the past. Check out Blinklesson.app. I met these folks at the NAMM show last month. I really dug learning about how extensive Blink Lesson is. So after NAMM, I signed up uh, and I used their platform. I used their platform to manage my own teaching studio. Head to thebayshed.com. I have links to them right there on the homepage. It'll make all the video lessons you do so much easier. Blinklesson.app. My guest on this episode is bassist, Senor Oscar Cartaya. Oscar stays very active as a composer, arranger, musical director, and producer. Obviously, within all that, he's always performing as a bassist. Oscar has worked with Spyra Gyra, Herb Albert, Jennifer Lopez, Celia Cruz, Ruben Blades, Tino Puente, Robbie Robertson, and more. Oscar has also played in the house band for TV's Showtime at the Apollo, the ESPYs, Latin Grammys, and Guy's Choice Awards. In addition, Oscar has worked composing and arranging for projects such as Jodie Foster's movie Contact, producing the soundtrack for the movie Wedding Bell Blues, and playing on Grammy-winning albums for Arturo Sandoval and others. Other recent projects include playing on albums with Pete Escovito, Andre Crouch, Juan Gabriel, Sheila E., and playing live behind such varied artists such as Justin Timberlake, Wayne Brady, All For One, Winona Judd, and Jonathan Butler. So, so you know, damn, right? Damn. Oscar also has his own album out titled Bajo Mundo, which you can check out at OscarGartaya.com. And I will have a link to his website at TheBayShed.com backslash podcast backslash Oscar Cartaya. It was great hanging with Oscar at Lemur Music. And here it is. Here's my talk with bassist and all other things music, <laughs> Mr. Oscar Cartaya.
What's up, everybody? My name is Ryan Roberts, host of the Bay Shed Podcast. I'm sitting here with Oscar Kataya. Yes, sir. What up, dude? You know? <laughs> good to be here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're at Lemur. How long did it take you to get down here? Oh, it was... Uh, we, can't, we, we can't have two L.A. musicians without talking about traffic. Like, you gotta get that out of the way. Do you want to know but in miles or in actual driving time? Time. time miles is not that bad. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's the deceiving part. You go, oh, it's 50-something yeah, miles. It should be 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it, it was like... I wouldn't change. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't throw anything like that. Yeah, about the same. Yeah, about the same. Thanks, man. Um, so, what have you been up to? You told me you just wrapped up playing, finished a musical. You I, I just finished uh, doing a musical in the Heights. Uh-huh. That was a, a very nice uh, book to play for a while. Had you played it before? No, never played okay. it. You know. Well, actually, what I have done was I was in a. Uh, in the uh, in the orchestra in New York in the original show. Okay. And I sat at the pit because I was gonna be subbing for the bass player that did the show for the whole run. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I had seen the book and stuff, but not actually sat down and, and played it. Yeah, yeah. Cool. How long was the show? Month? It went, yeah, exactly. Right. Between uh, production and stuff like that, five weeks. Yeah. Okay. What, what's, what do you got coming up now? Uh, getting ready to go to Yoshi's yeah. with the Escobedos. Uh, okay. Sheila, her dad, Peter Escobedo, nice. her two brothers. Do they only do it as a family now? Are they still doing like just well, yeah, they, they, you know, they they have more branched out than uh, <laughs> than, uh, <laughs> than a Fast and the Furious movie. <laughs> uh, you know, Sheila has her own career going sure. on. Pops, you know, Pops being Pops. He, he's, uh, they always do a run in July because okay. it's his birthday. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it's going to be his 84th birthday. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Still, going. still out there doing it. Yeah, so the, the shows are always special because it's uh, like at least five sold-out shows at Yoshi's. Yeah. And uh, the whole family comes out. It's just a family affair. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. How long are you at Yoshi's? Uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the 15th through the 17th. Okay, next week. Next week, yeah. Great. Cool, man. Cool. So are you from the States or were you born in Puerto Rico? No, I was born in New York City. Okay. And then raised in Puerto Rico. So how old were you when you, when you six? I was six when six. I went back. To okay, and then you came back to the states. When I you? came back to the state when I was eighteen. Oh wow, you were there for a minute. Yeah, I know. I did my whole schooling from from the first grade to uh, I did one year in the conservatory of music in Puerto Rico. Okay, I was in uh, PR. So when I was eighteen, I came here to California. Okay, I came. Uh, I went to uh, what it was called the Musicians Institute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Or BAT, it was the BAT. Oh, that's right. Base Institute of Technology. That. Yeah. yeah, they yeah. all had their separate. Exactly. BAT, BAT. It was B, at that time, it was only BAT, GAT, and PAT. It was bass, guitar, yeah. and percussion. And then, right. you know, became yeah. MI, and they added all the other stuff. Who, was, who were the teachers there? Uh, Jeff Berlin okay. was one of my teachers. Bob Magnuson. Okay. Acoustic uh, yeah. player. Uh, Tim Bolger. Oh yeah, Vanilla Yeah. Uh, who else? Uh, those were like three of the main principals. Uh, and and the guitar side, Joe Diorio was okay. a teacher there. Um, God, there's so many. Uh, Tommy Tedesco, the late Tommy Tedesco, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. was one of the teachers. Uh, there was a car uh, uh, performing. Uh, ensemble, Carl Schroeder, keyboard player. Okay, yes, I've and, heard of. Oh, yeah, legendary jazz player. Yeah. You know, uh, accomplished to everybody. So, Carl Schroeder, Bob Magnuson, and Joe Brancato. I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah. legendary, uh, old, old school. Okay, guys that they really were like 
whoop you into shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, now, when coming back, was that, did you come back for music school to go to BIT? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's uh, after, I did, a, I went to a performing arts school in Puerto Rico. Okay. So I did like six years of youth symphony, youth orchestra, and, uh, you know, I was very involved in the classical world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I had like a dual life. Soon as I, <laughs> I was over, I would grab my amping baby bass and start playing yeah, salsa right. at night, and, and that was my upbringing. Okay, uh, like doing classical during the day, playing Latin music right. at night. And, and Clark Kent, Superman situation. <laughs> yeah, like a weird Batman kind of yeah. situation. <laughs> so did that, and then uh, like around my, uh, I would say either my junior year in high school, uh, somebody brought me a Return to Forever album. Mm. And he said, oh, you look like this guy. And, and it was standing. And they pointed at You know, and at that time, I had like a little quasi afro. Okay. You know, and I'm like, yeah, you know, it could be me. You know, and, and then from there, uh, the, the gates of heaven opened. And I started like, you know, looking into like more to jazz. Yeah. To Jaco and the Stanley. Okay. And uh, then Abe Lavorio. Right. You know, so then I went down the rabbit hole. Right. And electric bass became like my obsession. Yeah. So I started shifting a little bit from the classical world more into electric bass. And this is still back in Puerto this Rico. This is still in Puerto Rico. I was going to say, because Jeff, the connection between Jeff Berlin and Jocko is <laughs> super tight. So you couldn't have studied with Jeff yeah. and not have dealt with Jocko. Exactly. So uh, in my first year in the conservatory, they had like the little cubicles where you could practice. Okay. And my bass teacher, his name was Manuel Verdeguer, okay. Spaniard that was brought by Pablo Casals, which is a legendary cello player. Okay. And actually, the conservatory is named after him. Oh, wow. Uh, Pablo Casals. And uh, Manuel Verdeguer was his dear friend. He was a, he would be like, a, like a Gary Clark of his days. Yeah. I mean, like, guy. Virtuoso. Virtuoso. Yeah. Exactly. And he walked into one of the cubicles, and I had my upright laying down on the floor, and I was practicing my electric bass. <laughs> And automatically, he disqualified him from. He disqualified me from his world. Like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was done yeah. there and then. None of that. And I realized, you know what? This is not going to go too far <laughs> any further in, in this in this place here. So right. that's when I started looking into. Okay. Coming out here, came to LA. Did uh, was it a big culture shock? Not only from going to another country, but just how musicians play and how they taught music. Oh, was that a culture shock? Completely. Now. I have my upbringing in Puerto Rico. Uh, there's still a lot of that mentality, but specifically, you know, almost 40 years ago, it was that if you did not read music, if you were not like an all-around well-trained musician, you could not work. Mm-hmm. That was the the what was embedded into you as a young player. Right. So I used to. I remember my high school uh, solfeggio class. I had to read seven clefs. You know, it was 208 notes and the teacher will call out what clef she wanted. It was treble clef. It was bass clef. It was C clef. You know, and you had to like read all that. So that was the importance of reading. Right. Uh, when I got here, I was shocked that there was people in school that yeah, didn't read it yeah. at all. And I'm going like, how did you get here? I mean, this is possible. But the, the flip side of that was my ears was strictly just to hold my glasses. I mean, right. I could not retain two bars of music because yeah. I was so used to reading everything. Yeah. Uh, so my process was different than most of the other people. The other guys were learning how to read 
you know, triplets and dotted notes and stuff right. like that. I was trying to like figure out what a 12 bar blues was. Right, 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 right. So uh, in my in my classes, I remember getting up to play and I will outread my teachers, which, you know, yeah. so that was kind of sad. And I'm up there and I'm telling them, no bar 42. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> you know. But then when it came bar, when it came time to play, I did something that it was by ear. I couldn't. Right. You know, so my 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 whole uh, time went into developing other skills. OK, uh, that was one of the uh, most uh, uh, culture, not culture shock, but musically shock that I yeah. got because I, I'm so used to doing one thing and thinking this is the way if you read music, if, if you can uh, do this, uh, then you you're secure to, yeah, to yeah. This, be, this qualifies you and validates your musicianship. And yes. And it was like exactly the opposite here. They will give me a cassette back in the day and the here, learn these songs. Yeah. And now I'm in my room trying to remember like 10 songs for a gig yeah. that there was no charts. And I'm like losing my mind because I, I felt like at that time, how do you retain all this information? Isn't that yeah. so? It yeah, was, it was funny uh, that transition. When and you I, were when you were doing the the salsa gigs, though, were was were those reading? Oh yeah, every, everything, everything, even the salsa. Oh, oh no, no, everything has a chart. And, really? and again, you the gigs that you will get at that time were according to your reading skills. Because wow. there's such the better a, reader that you were, you know, you can play with these bands because this book was harder. Okay. And so, there's yeah. A really it, strong emphasis. Oh, yeah. No, no. Wow. The emphasis in reading was completely a, a, uh, a definite factor of what level of work you will get. And then all the sessions uh, back in the day when you will go do a session, everything is written out. Yeah. Every, from from the beginning to end, the group, doom, 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 doom. Even the bills, everything, the ranger will write everything. Right. It wasn't until later on that you started getting like barcode, I mean like bars with just a slash okay. and they give you the chord in the top and then you figure out what to play. Yeah. And they will write fill. And okay. then you know that that was something. Where, but even slides, I mean, they will put like a slide, <laughs> everything. So when you showed up to a session, wow, you had to read. So there's a lot of then work for arrangers there during that time. Oh, yes, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's all like a, like, a, like a state of mind of how, quote unquote, the industry evolves in each different place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In other places, you know, recordings already were being done where people go in and jam the yeah. way through recording something. Right, just work something out. Exactly. The studio, then all we hear, the concept was, and still into today, uh, in certain circuits, like if you go to a movie date, mm -hmm. you you have to be. Right? Right. There's no improvises yeah, here. Yeah. You're, not, you're not making up a part. <laughs> yeah, unless it's like you know you're a very avant-garde uh, composer, yeah. and it's like let's just jam something here. Yeah. But <laughs> and, and that will put you in a in a position of if you can if you can be if you can adapt to this environment. How quick are you? How effective and how productive? And it always was. One thing is to write the stuff. The other thing is to make it feel right. good. Anybody can read it, but then it comes to the levels of how how good can you make this feel? Yeah. Versus so it's natural. It doesn't sound like exactly because a lot of the excuses that I used to get back in the day of hearing from people, oh, I don't read because you know that takes away the feel. And I was like, no, you right. know, if you read, you know what you're supposed to interpret, and then you put your own feel on top of the reading. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. 
That's right. So then uh, you're at MI. What, what year did you graduate? From? I graduated in 1983. Okay. Was it a two-year program? How long? No, at that time, it was like a year program. Okay. Uh, and then I finished. Uh, my classmate was Frank Gambali. Okay. So Frank and I were. Uh, Scott Henderson had just finished the year before. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, Norman Brown was one of my students. <laughs> funny thing was like you will go in and they will give you like this one year pack uh of, of, of stuff and when you graduated you get like a certificate whatever but then i literally graduated on a saturday okay they have a ceremony and monday i started working as an instructor oh wow so yeah you know so yeah exactly friday i walked in as a student then yeah. monday i walked in teaching <laughs> and it, it was hard at first because you're talking to some guy that was like your classmate, right? And now Monday, you're in a room trying to teach him something. I was like, really? Dude? How, did, how did that work? Did they did they respect you as an educator, or were they still looking at you? No, it was uh, it was like uh, the samurai battle every time. You had to prove why I was there teaching. You know, and it wasn't like I remember Frank started teaching myself. That like maybe three or four guys from the class that graduated, and, and it wasn't like a full time teacher. We were. Uh, like lab instructor, you know, like helping okay. small group, coaches. small group of people that obviously were at a lesser level. Yeah. And, you know, the teachers, the, our teachers were still there doing the main instruction, but you were like a Price teacher. Trainer, people that are just, just enrolled. Newbies. Exactly. Yeah. But then it was always like, always like justifying why. Yeah, you yeah. had this kid, right? right. You know, yeah. like, it's, years it's like if this would have been the Wild West, is you gotta like be white <laughs> sling. It's like shooting people all day. Yeah, like okay. So after a year of that, I said, you know what, I I, I want to go play. Yes. And then I went uh, back to New York. Okay. So in 1984, I moved to New York. Okay. And you get into the salsa scene back then. Uh, when I first landed there, by default, that was uh, what I what I end up playing yeah. with. Uh, okay. And I worked at that time. With some of the people that I already knew from before and knew people, but definitely like the the bigger names in the industry, the Tito Puentes, yeah. Cruz, Ruben Blades, Willie Colon. Uh, yeah, I spend a better part of a good four or five years just recording, touring, MD for yeah. all of them, and then that's very good. And now, did you have contacts before you went to New York, or did you just show up in New York and be like? Now I got to carve this out. Well, funny enough, when I when I was in Puerto Rico as a kid, uh, there was a very influential bass player for the Latin progressive, I should call Latin music, called Sal Cuevas. Okay. Sal Cuevas is um, the equivalent of, of uh, James Jameson. Okay. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, a guy that completely... Uh, Innovator guy, innovator guy. Yeah. Play the same music that had been already been played for the last thirty years or something, but he put a, a you know twist to it. Yeah, okay. and he was a really good upright and electric player. Okay, but in the electric player, he brought like all the slap and double stops. You know, Chuck Rainey will be a right. Good okay. That's exactly what I was gonna say. Yes, He's like okay, he brought all the Chuck Rainey and, stuff, and, and that was his influence. If you okay. ask him, you know, he he knew Chuck, but he was like one of the, the if not the very first. Definitely like one of the, the, the pioneers of crossing over all the Latin rhythms with putting all this other stuff to it. Okay. So now me as an 18, 19 year old kid listening yeah. to this, 
I was losing my mind. I'm yeah. like, this guy is slapping and tapping and double stops and the whole thing. And that generation of players, that was the guy that that completely like shed a light on everything. So we started listening and he was an A1 session guy back in late 70s to almost late 80s, mid 70s to like the late 80s in New York City. Okay. He was on everything. Just doing everything. Everything. It was him on the Latin stuff, Marcus yeah. doing like, you know, a lot of the record dates, Will Lee, yeah. Neil Jason, another bass player called Francisco Centeno from okay. New York City. Those guys capitalized that market. So here I am, a kid. He comes to Puerto Rico to play with a group called the Fania All Stars. Mm-hmm. And Fania All Stars will be the equivalent of, you say, the Motown All Stars. Okay. Like if Motown would have put a label, uh, a band yeah. of all their main singers and then put a band of all their main players. Right. Like the Funk Brothers touring with like a review of all the. That was the Fania All Stars. Robinson, the Technicians, exactly. everybody. Yeah. That was okay. the equivalent of the Fania All Stars. So Fania All Stars was like the super band of the 70s. Okay. Early 80s. And wherever they were in concert, it was, I mean, they're doing sold out Yankee Stadium in New York wow. City. They're playing the uh, Lee Frazier battle of boxing fight in Africa. I mean, man, okay. They, they were like the band. <laughs> yeah. So Sal, he wasn't the original bass player, but he became the second bass player of the band. And now uh, he's recording with them and everything. He goes to Puerto Rico and I trace him down. I make my way to backstage to the concert. Yeah. You know, and I go up to him and like I meet him. I'm, I'm still in high school. And I go, hi, Sal. My name is this guy. I'm a big fan. You know, and he's like the nicest guy. Hey, man, what? Yeah. Back then, of course, his phone number. He goes, oh, here's my phone number. You know, yeah, when I come back, I'll call you. And I give him my number. So one day <laughs> we're coming. I'm coming with my buddies from school and we get to the house. And my mom goes, um, you have a message. Some, some guy call you. A Salino, Sal, 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 Sal Cuevas, mommy, he called me? And he goes, yeah, he's in the hotel, San Juan, he said, I said, what? So I, I go with my friends, yeah, let's go, and we yeah. jump in the car, and we take off to the hotel, and there he was, they were amazing. Yeah, and that's how the friendship started. Okay. So now, he will come to Puerto Rico, he will call me, and so when I go to, when I come to LA to study, at uh, the Hollywood Palladium, they were having a big uh, show with the late Ray Barreto, Celia Cruz, uh, a whole bunch of artists, and Sal was the basis mm. on that show. Okay. So, uh, oh, uh, Jorge Dalto. He's the piano player that did Masquerade intro for George Benson. Yeah. He's on Broadway. Him, him and Ronnie Foster did all the legendary early recordings with Benson when he had that. Okay. Jorge Dalto and Ronnie Foster. So they're playing, and the late Dave Valentine was playing flute. Mm-hmm. They're playing at the Hollywood Palladium, and I go, I go, and I see Sal Sal. And he said, like, "Man, what are you doing here?" I said, "I've been at school and stuff like that." And he goes, "Oh man, I want you to meet somebody." So he introduces me to Jorge Dalto, to Dave Valentine, you know, and he goes, "Oh, okay, well, you know," and they, they go, "Oh man, you Sal, give me this my number." You go to New York, everybody starts handing you numbers and stuff like that. Six months later. I decide I'm leaving LA. Yeah, I'm going to New York. So I get to New York, and the first person I call is Sal. Of course. And uh, Sal is like, oh man, what are you doing? Come on. He starts taking me to all his like, rehearsals and gigs, and he's wow. introduced me to everybody. He goes, like, oh, this is my little boy, you know, Oscar here. And it's like, oh, okay, my little brother. Everybody's like, you know, yeah. Sal is valid. 
validating for you. It's like, okay. Right, you're just, you're automatically in. Yeah. yeah. So, little by little, I start getting gigs and I call Jorge Dalto. And like a regular, whatever, Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. And I call him up and I say, Jorge, hi, this is Asu Kretaya. We met in LA with Sal. And he goes, oh, my God, yeah, yeah. How you doing? Good. What are you doing? And I'm like, wow. I'm in, in New York now. I live here. No, no, no. What are you doing right now? He's <laughs> like, oh, I'm in my apartment. Well, come down. Come down to my studio. And, he, you know, I was like in 96 and first. He told me, I'm in 34th and 7th. And, and I jump in the subway and I get there. And when I show up, there was like three of the most legendary musicians in the, in the Latin scene yeah. playing in him. And it was like, I'm like looking around. Like, Ooh. And he goes, oh, let's jam. And we started playing for like half an hour and then he goes okay we're gonna play may 17 here and he starts giving me dates like now when you were playing with them were you were you vibed out by who they were not because of their presence but like were you in your head or could you relax no i I mean like yeah i'm I'm a little bit like yeah you know like trying to keep it under control i know who the guys are i know i can play the stuff and it was like okay let's jam and they're just playing and they're you know they're playing standards latin stuff that i know so we're going into it and he just wanted to see if I can play. Yeah, but we played for like half an hour and now he's giving me dates. I'm like, we're going out on the road and I'm like, oh, well, this is New York. And then from, <laughs> yeah. from there, it just ricocheted. Like, I will get a call for this and this. Did so I did that, I guess, like for the last first four or five years of being in New York, okay. bouncing from one to the other. And again, New York City back, that was still like the glory days of New York. You would go to the village and there was easily 15 clubs with music right in one in, in a radius of like two miles yeah you so you go miles. from you go from from uh uh village gay to mongo person to the blue note to the seventh avenue uh, south to lush life and you will see everybody yeah like literally anthony jackson is playing one club will lee is playing at the other club right. marcus is at another club and it's just like is this? You know, yeah. and then from there you start getting your stuff. And I did all of that until I just started saying, well, I want to do something else because I'm in New York. Yeah. And now I started concentrating and doing more of like the funk and jazz gigs and stuff like okay. that. And that's what lands me with Spyro Genera. Okay. And then how long were you with that? I was with Spyro for five and a half years, almost okay. six. Okay, are they still around doing? Oh, they're still around. They're still They've around. been, I mean, they're like in, I will say, maybe the 30th or 30-something years of existence. Oh, wow. Yeah, they actually, they just played San Juan Capistrano, the, the coach house, not even oh, really? like a month and a half ago. Oh, great. Yeah. And then did that, did that springboard into other smooth jazz gigs and stuff like that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I was with them from 88 to like 94. And okay. that's when I... Uh, like when I left over years for that music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, no, I was like, well, I was like, you know, it's kind of just hit the scene and everybody thinks they're listening to jazz because they're listening to that. But, you know, that's uh, yeah. That's well, hey, at that point, uh, I was, uh, they were signed to GRP and yeah. GRP was like the label. Right. So I did a lot of recordings for them, for different artists. And, okay. and uh, then I got to produce some records for Dave Valentine and Herbie Mann. Oh, wow. Um, it, it was a great time. Did you play on the stuff you produced also? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I wrote, played, and produced on, on stuff. Oh, wow. You wrote it? Yeah. Nice. Did you also arrange? Because I feel like back then, in different generations, previous generations, the role of a producer had 
wore more hats than it did just oh, now. I, I, I definitely come from that era of yeah. uh, Arif Martin. I mean, the, the, the guys that will get in there and it's not like sitting there just moving their head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, <laughs> you know, right, right, right. Yeah, I can do this. Yeah, you know, yeah, well, like, what did you actually do? Yeah. Exactly. In, in that era, the producer was considered the guy that assembles the whole thing, yeah. is responsible uh, for the, the, the product or the, the material that we're going to create. It's involved in every step of it, from the writing or to the arranging or everything. So how much did how much of engineering did producers get involved with that? Were you involved with, you know, I want this kind of sound, I'm this specific mic, or did you leave all that to the engineer? Uh, I have always said I my strength comes from knowing my weakness. Yeah. yeah. There's people that they gravitate, that they love that part of it. Right. Yeah. Like they love the the tweaking of finding out where this mic goes and, and what's a proper All the signs, you know. Yeah. I don't. I mean, <laughs> that has never been in my DNA. I since they, I mean, like for me, like one of my biggest downfall when I'm writing or working on my stuff is the amount of time that goes into looking for a sound. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can be there for hours because like I'm, I'm a little bit OCD about yeah. things and say, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're listening to 200 snares, at some point you lose all perspective. Yeah. And it's like, I just need something to go. Right. One of them could have happened outside and you thought it was a sample. Like, you know, exactly. So I realized that early. So yeah. I always have engineers that I trust, Good. that understand. And, you know, in the early days, I remember like bringing engineers my records mm-hmm. of stuff that I have heard that I like. And it's like, okay. References. Exactly. Yeah. If like sound, sonic references of yeah. what I was looking for. You know, for this artist, I think this is a concept. You know, we want like a bigger room kind of sound. No, oh, this is like a tighter thing. Oh, you know, and then obviously in that era, you were going through a lot of changes of, you know, programming, synth base, right. all of that. So all of that started gravitating and shifting of how you approach things. And, and this, you know, there was the snares that sounded like the Grand Canyon, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. taking over the whole session. And so, yeah, there was a lot of adjusting. How, uh, given like your reading background, how much of that was involved with sessions you'd produce? Would you show up with charts and expect your musicians to read, or would you? Yeah, uh, a lot of the times there will be uh, stuff pretty much arranged. Yeah. So th- there were sessions that is just read down the paper. Okay. You know, like we we you hand out charts to everybody, do one, two, three takes, and that's done. Move yeah. on next time. Uh, some others were like more of core charts and let's go for a feel okay. looking for this and stuff like that. But always it's, it's a combination of the right players. Yeah. You know, like you, if you call the right people that you know are going to give you certain things, certain element, then that will make your life easier. Of course. And that's something that you learn only with time. Because yeah. I always thought when you first start, you always think the best players make the best band. wrong that's like saying the best game of the season is the all-star game (laughs) it's the most boring game ever exactly in a team you need one superstar maybe two and then you need role players you need the guy that will dive three rolls in to get the ball or you need the guy that is just going to be there knocking people left and right it's the same thing with music you always need your guy that is going to like give you 
time pocket, whatever it is, the flashy one that can take the solos that people go, ooh, yeah, you know, and, and when you put a team like that, that you understand, this is what I need from this guy, this is what I need from this one, these guys can do this, then it makes your life easier as an MD or as a producer. Yeah. Did you find yourself using the same team, for the lack of a better word? Yeah, a lot. Well, you worked with them and they knew what side was. It, 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 it's, it's like in everything in life. You get people that, that uh, understand. And, sure. and one thing that I always tell people, and this is going to go down in history, is no university or no college on earth teaches people that the most important part of putting something together is the chemistry as people. Yes. I agree. It doesn't, I mean, you can be the best player on earth, but if you're an a-hole, I can only handle you for so long yeah. before I want to kill you. Right. So you will sacrifice at any given time a lesser amount of talent for a nicer person. Yeah. You know. And I think that there's something about like how you connect with someone off bandstand or off out of the set. That's going to come into the studio or on the bandstand. So or, or on the road. A lot yeah. of times on the road, it's like right. that's the biggest tester of everything because we've all been on the road with somebody that you wouldn't mind pushing off the train. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you go like, great, I can't wait. To and one person can create this whole vibe. Oh, yeah. So it takes you a moment to, these are things that you just learn with time. You, sure. you know, unfortunately, again, there's no course, there's no book, there's no handbook of how right. to figure this out. Yeah. You realize this with time and you realize that you get calls from people because they like to be around you right. the same way that you do with others. And, you know, if you're a pleasant guy, you give no trouble, you, you do your job, you get there and, t you know, it's like, let me call this guy. Yeah. You know, and I'm done. And that's what happens in a lot of uh, recording or touring or situations. You will find a, an enclave, a nucleus of people that you can relate to, you understand. And, you know, their chemistry among them. It's, it's, it's creating an environment where everybody's productive. Right. It is. Yeah, and so much of it is people management before it even gets to sitting behind your instrument. You can ask anybody. I always say MD is glorified babysitting. Yeah. It's nothing. I mean, it's glorified babysitting. Sure. You got to understand the guy that is always like spaced out that you got to tell him three times the same yeah. thing you told the other guys once. You know, somebody's going to show up and it's not going to have something. He forgot something, went to the wrong place. Right. You know, they're driving around looking for a parking spot for <laughs> two hours. And it's like, just park. I'll give you the money. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. all of these things. Everybody the, music part, the music part is like so... Yeah, like new school compared to all the other stuff that you go like, okay, yeah. How many guys uh, in all the years you've been an MD did you have you used from New York when coming to the, the West Coast? Oh, I still, you still, still do it to this time. Like, okay. A couple of days ago, uh, one of my best friends and dear brother for many years, his name is Mark Quinones, percussionist. We started in the New York salsa scene together back in the early 80s. Then when I got the gig with Spiral, I called him to uh, play in a track that I had written for the band. Okay. When he played the guys from Spiral and, you know, the, the leader, Jay Beckinsale, was like, man, who is that guy? Like, Let me talk to him. So he ended up doing the whole record. Okay. He ends up going on tour with us. <laughs> and, and the tour, when we were in Florida, he meets uh, Butch Truckers from the Album Brothers. Okay. And he comes to the dressing room and goes, I'm going to steal this guy from you. 
And we go like, you can take it. You don't have to steal it. We'll give it to you. Well, he ended up doing 20 something years with the Allen Brothers. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. Then uh, when the Allen Brothers finally break up, he goes out to play with, with Greg Allen and his band. Then Greg passes away. Now he's with the Doobie Brothers. So yeah. he has a brother thing. He just sure. plays with brother man. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, all this to say that he was just in town maybe a month ago getting ready to do a residency with the Doobie Brothers in Vegas. Okay. I mean, we're still like, we haven't, we haven't stopped our friendship from almost 40 years ago. It's right, like right. calling each other on the phone, giving a heart to what are you doing? Yeah. We were in the studio cutting some tracks. And the chemistry has been there yeah. for decades. And, you know, one will tell the other, you know, that sucks. No, you suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. you go back again, but we get it done. Sure. And at the end, it's like, okay, yeah, that's what we wanted. But yeah. And I think that there's, I don't know, it, there's no rule. It's fun to have that little edge well, in the studio. Otherwise, the studio is so sterile. Well, you definitely need something just to and, stimulate and your one mind. Thing that I have, unfortunately, seen so much and learned is that there is different levels of, of recording. There's sometimes where everybody is being so polite and, yeah. and you know, and, and what I call, uh, and uh, my definition is the, the, the dogs when they meet each other and they're sniffing. Yeah. And sniffing. And it's like, yeah. oh my God, you sound so good. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow, great. You know, and it, there's a level of like not fake yeah, yeah. Everybody's just, it's still a business card. Exactly. Yeah. So everybody's just like complimenting each other. And then there's a raw thing when you're like with people you know, and it's like, wow, that sucks. Yeah. Can we play it the right way? You know, and yeah. then you go, okay. And they'll call out. It's like, dude, you're dragging. No. And everybody goes, yes, you are. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is another level. And again, that comes with friendship. That comes with, you know, a certain uh, level of, 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 uh, assurance that you know who you're dealing with sure. and how is it going to be taken and me uh starting in new york city as a studio full-time studio musician i mean in puerto rico i was a kid so yeah. i i said what i was told from all the adults you know right, right, right. i always was the one at fault it didn't matter <laughs> because i'm the youngest one in the session they don't care right uh but now in new york city uh the people are pretty much very new yorkers they you know the producer will walk in he goes Okay, I ain't fucking grooving at all. It's yeah. pretty, you know, it's like nobody took it. Like, oh, he's talking to me. And I was like, yeah. okay, he's not grooving. Let's do it right. again. Here is, I learned that it was a little bit more. Yeah, 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 a little bit more politically, and yeah. you know, yeah, you don't want to hurt anybody. Yeah, exactly. Let's try one more time. Everybody's a little bit more delicate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so but it is what it is. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who are you MDing right now? Anybody? Uh, well, I do. We've been doing a residency at Sofitel. That's still happening. That That's came back. Happening. I didn't know because I, I went out to go see you yeah. a couple years before the shutdown. Oh, yeah. 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 Great band. Full house. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know if it had come no, back. We started June of last year. So it's been a year now. Oh, wow. Okay. Since uh, they finally uh, gave the, uh, the clearance to go in and start having indoors event. Nice. And uh, that's one of the uh, artists that I work with. Uh, Son Candela is the name of the band. Okay. And, and we, we've been there for better part of three years because we did a year pandemic for a year and a half yeah. off and then back for you. So I do that. Mostly I work my own project, my own band, okay. and, you know, MD, right? And, and been working with that, doing stuff. Talk it's, about that. What's that? Is that in 
The jazz funk mixed with Latin? Is it more primarily Latin? That is the... Uh, the qualify, the thing you do with the sofa tell. It's salsa. Yeah, that's, yeah, a, that's, that's a straight out dance salsa night. Yeah. That's uh, people that want to get their boogie on. And then, is that a band specifically for that place on that night? Or does that band go out and do other well, things? That, no, that band works as a, as a, as a regular unit. Okay. Uh, so we... Sofa tell is our home base on Wednesdays. Yes. But we do all type of... Uh, Private events, corporate okay. stuff, play other venues, but okay. you know, even go out of town to a you know, yeah, yeah. So that band is is, is its own identity. Uh, my personal stuff has been uh, what I like to call an asopao. Asopao is the Spanish word for gumbo. Okay, okay. <laughs> it is everything in the kitchen sink. Yeah, because me being fortunate enough to have been covered from Latin music to like funky to jazz to all kind of stuff. When it comes time to do my thing, I put no limitation to it. You know, sure. if I go work with somebody, I work within the confinements of what they want to Absolutely. do. You know, some people want you to, you know, just groove and, and you know, stay, stick to that. And it's like, fine. Yeah. Some other people want more edges of it, but then as a writer, producer, composer artist now i'm gonna do clubs are off yeah exactly i i do whatever i'm hearing and i throw it all together and i, I think always more of a concept of a presentation instead of like style okay so i can't say it's a latin band because we do a lot of other stuff yeah. i can't say it's a funk band because we don't do all funk i can't say it's a jazz band because we don't do enough jazz yeah. now it's in a combination of all these elements. It's all in there, yeah. Yeah. And the most important thing is the presentation of how you put this out there for people to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Because I, I believe that there's a responsibility of when you go out to play that you, you have to take off your ego of you coming to see me versus I'm here to entertain you. I agree. Absolutely. And uh, it's whatever. If they don't show up. There's no game. There's no, there's yeah. no reason for me to be exactly. here. Exactly. If you're not here, right? If people don't come listening or expecting music, they're not going to call musicians. Why do you work on any level? Yeah. You know, if they don't show up, I remember years ago, me and my brother, who you know, mm -hmm. uh, we went. We took my dad to go see Eric Clapton back in. My dad's a big Eric Clapton fan, and I remember sitting there thinking, like, all these people are here to see Eric Clapton. But, like, Eric Clapton wouldn't do this if we weren't here. Well, yeah. Like, he's here for us. We're not here for them. I mean, we're here for him, but he's also here for us. And there's a relationship. Well, there, there's, there's a... Uh, you need each other. A dynamic, yeah. exactly. There, there's a, this is like a, almost like a mutual, mutual understanding that we... I always say that it becomes... There's no bad audience. There's... You know, there's an audience that is not get, getting what you're doing, and that's why you're not getting that feedback. Because right. feedback is sound that comes in through one system and keeps amplifying itself. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's the vibe that you create when you play. If you're not getting good feedback from that way here, is that whatever's coming from here to there is not right. really impacting them. Because I know that we are encoded, our DNA is primal when it comes to emotions mm -hmm. we don't control our emotions you know you can you can try to rein them in but sadness happiness you know surprise uh, 
all these elements it's have a sensory reaction, like smelling something or tasting exactly. something. Exactly. So when something feels good and something is really like burning and grooming, you can't control it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. no matter how stiff you are, you're just gonna go with it and say, mm. you know, yeah. once that happens and you know that is growing because you sense it, it's a, it's almost like two things happening up. A, a, a physical one where we all see what's going on, but then this whole this other stuff in the in the elements yeah. and up in the you know in the atmosphere, which is just sense. You feel yeah. it or you don't. So when the band feels that, you always go to the next gear. Yeah, it's like uh huh. You just keep pushing and you keep on yeah. pushing, and then that's when you, and with larger amount of people, it's easier to sense that that's power. Yeah, because when you go to an arena and there's whatever twenty, thirty thousand people losing their mind, that energy. It's felt yeah, by it's us right. performance. But hearing somebody laugh makes you want to laugh. Exactly. Like, it's same thing. So it's very important to always keep that. And I always tell people in the band, you know, my guys, when we come play, if you don't come to have a good time, then don't come. Yeah. You know, we, us as players, we're the first one entitled to have the best time possible. Yeah. You know, you have to go there and, you know, you can't just mail it in. Or, you can't just be playing or like, um, yeah. no, no, because... Yeah. It's starting already wrong from here. Yeah. You know, we go out there, we, you know, play our butts off. We really enjoy this moment. They feel it. They send it back. Now you feel good. And that's when you finish and you get off the stage and you're like in a high, like a natural high of like, oh, yeah, you know. Yeah. And everybody's looking at each other and, and the high fives because they created <laughs> that experience. And I always like, part of my mantra when I go, I always say, you know, the ease of like, you know, we're here to enlighten. Yeah, we want to enlighten you, the audience. You know, people pay hardworking money. You don't want to hear that, you know, we're tired. Right. We've been in the road for a month. Right. No, no, no. For everybody, each night is a new experience. Yes. So we want to enlighten. We want to entertain you, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And at some point, we want to educate you, you know, whatever yeah. sense we can. It can be from worldviews to, like, injustice that we believe we can, uh, you know, bring to, to our forelight and, and and express to people. So it, yeah. it, it's a big uh, uh, commitment to get on that bandstand sure. and, and do what you what you really are supposed to do. Yeah. What? Uh, how big is the group? Uh, it's like a seven piece band. Oh, well, it depends. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's you know like it varies because uh, uh, I have uh, drums, percussion, two percussions or one percussion. Okay. I have keys. Uh, I have two horns. I sometimes I have a violin. So when I have the full shebang, drum, two percussions, two horns, a violin, keys, yeah. and myself, that is like, you know. That's the whole, oh yeah. What, um, when you go for writing for your group, what's, where do you regularly find inspiration for tunes or pieces? Man, writing is, uh, is something that I have developed organically my whole life. I started writing very early. I mean, I okay. remember like a, like at 15, 16, when we were jamming with my friends, I already was writing stuff, yeah. you know, and I will bring like little scraps of stuff. Okay. You know, and you know, it's bad when you have to tell somebody what you wrote because yeah. they can't figure it out. You know, it's like, you know, no, it's that, 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 that. And they go like, okay. Da -da, da -da. So it, it used to be like that, but I always have felt um, like a natural process of there's, as a, as a composer, because I do film scoring and stuff like that, mm -hmm. there's times that you have to sit down and you have to create. You're yeah. forced to write something. So for that, it, that's where all the studying and all the technical stuff comes in.
but when it's your personal uh, creation, something that you're just looking, and so you just let it come naturally and start messing around. And, uh, obviously, for me, my my main weapon is my bass. I, sure, I pick up my bass and I start most of the stuff from there, and then move into a piano and start figuring out things or grab a guitar. But I will say. 80, 90 percent of the time, it's the bass. It starts with the bass, and and because of my education, harmonic and stuff like that, I can hear. Yeah. You know, even if I'm playing a C, yeah. I'm, I'm hearing you know a D. I'm hearing a D over C in my head, yeah, which yeah. is weird because you know now I'm like playing something, but I'm hearing something else, and I'm like, sure. mm, you know, I'm like, mm, you know, so right, and then you grow, and the best part is. After you've done that, all that craziness, and you hear it, it's like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, when people start playing, it's like, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, I've written, I did one movie soundtrack, and I, I did arrangements on another movie. I like writing under the confinements you just spoke mm-hmm. of, when you have to almost just kind of sprinkle on a little bit of whatever garnish to a story that's already existing rather than starting another story. Yes. You know, like th- that's fun for me. Uh, what type of things do you look to lock in with when you're writing for uh, a screen lock? Well, I call that that process the tailor process. Mm-hmm. Because when I get in that position, I feel yeah. like I'm a tailor. Yeah. And my job is to make the best suit for you. Yeah. Your body type, your skin color, your sure. height, you know, everything. So you put that thing on and you like feel, and that's what film scoring is. Yeah. It's not about me. Right now. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, if, if, if somehow this becomes like, oh, the music is beautiful. Well, what was the film about? I don't remember. Then yeah, you lose the point because you're there to compliment something. It has to go hand in hand. Uh, what I have learned working with different directors is that you always follow their lead and their vision because, you know, a lot of the times they'll give you temp music with what it, they already set their mind to something. Sure. You can perhaps steer them in a different direction a little bit or give them something they want to think, but I will say the path is already set. Yeah. They were thinking, you know, this kind of vibe for this scene or this is the whole, uh, I, I mean, I work with some directors that they are almost, almost looking for just atmospheric stuff. Yeah. They don't want, you know, they want feels like a lot of swells and, yeah. and the weird things. And it's like, okay, you know, that's what he's hearing. I can't, yeah, it's but, more textural. Yeah. And there's some other uh, directors that have told me the vibe that I'm looking for. And then they give me like more of a green light. They tell me, you know, I, I'm looking lush. I want, you know, okay. something, you know, and then I give broader. Exactly. Or in some others, it's almost like a takedown of whatever, they already yeah they want to sound like because and you re, you know again after you've done this one moment and you had a couple of sessions where you know what's going on you realize okay uh let me not try to push this one because it, you know right. I, I will try to present different cues and they go yeah but you know in this section what i was hearing and it's like okay and you will try something else and, and then you realize okay it's a takedown just put a spin to whatever that was. And some other times they go, oh man, give me more of that. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like a lot of your MD skills are going to work with dealing with directors because it's the same thing. You're just dealing with people. 
when talking to uh, a younger generation of musicians, and you have to explain how much of it is just people management and empathy and how that comes into play and negotiating all these micro decisions we make on stage in real time. Yeah. How do you begin to communicate those ideas? Uh, I will. I or would you if you haven't already? Yeah, because I try to tell, I try to explain to younger players the technical aspect of anything. Some anyone can develop that. You can be a florist, a baker, whatever. A recipe of two eggs with butter and stuff. Yeah, it's the same. Right. It's whatever you do to make it, you know, special. If, if you're gonna like, you know, bake it at lower you know lower heat or more heat if you're going to keep on you know moving it that creates your personality comes through that and it's the same thing with music it's the same three notes it's the groove it's whatever it's whatever extra you do to customize it in a way that people say oh right that and it can be the whole experience of just being around you and making it feel good and knowing that you're going to show up on time. They don't have to call you three times to like remind you about a gig. You know, you're not going to show up and go like, oh my God, I forgot uh, my head of the amp. <laughs> you know, all of those things, they play like the subliminal part of what the gig is about. Sure. Because like I said earlier, you can be the best player, but if you are hard to deal with, People will, oh, yeah, will weigh the consideration of like, oh, well, I want to deal with this guy. Yeah. You know, they know you're going to go play it. And they know this other guy can also play the same thing. Yeah. You know, he's not as flashy as as you, but the extra weight that carries around. Everything what, that comes with that. Exactly. Like, is this worth it? Like, I, more often than not, it's not worth it. So that's why I always try to explain to all these guys. Yeah, you know, you can be the baddest I've played, but... You are a person 24-7. Yeah. You're a musician, a couple hours, a long day, but a person, a human being that people have to deal with, that's 24-7. Yeah. So make that priority number one. All the other stuff will get added to it. Then it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's a good package right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? uh, wrapping up. Like, worst gig story. <laughs> like, what are some just We like- should have started with that. when we go into gig stories because I, I, I'd rather focus on the funny ones. Okay. There, there's, been, there's been ugly ones. Yeah. But the funny ones, uh, I was, when I was still living in Puerto Rico, I was maybe 17 years old, I got called to play Holiday on Ice okay. in Puerto Rico. Right there, you know that's an oxymoron. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I wasn't going to touch it. <laughs> you know. So, it already, the title alone is like, they're doing what? Yeah. At, at a Coliseum, they were going to put the spectacular called Holiday on Ice okay. in Puerto Rico. There's no ice to be found nowhere. Right. They were not going to freeze a, an arena or anything. So, the typical, the, the, the girlfriend of the producer of the show, the whole show was uh, uh, the dream of like an Aladdin show. Aladdin okay. was a star. Okay. And again, it was like one of these quasi Disney productions of things going on. And 
half of the band was from the island, half of the band came from the United States. Okay. Uh, we're doing all these kind of stuff, you know, you know, quirky music, whatever. Yeah. So the horn section had come from the United States. The rhythm section was from Puerto Rico. And like I said, the girl that is playing Aladdin, because it's all like a dream, okay. is the girlfriend of the producer. Talentless yeah. to another level, but yeah, her, her sugar daddy's paying for everything. So you got to get yes. So there was we were doing, we, we're talking and like we've been two weeks into this show, and one of the horn players goes like, "When are we gonna get paid?" And I look at him and say, "What do you mean?" He said, "I haven't gotten a penny yet." It's like well, we get paid every week. And he goes, what? You've been paid? And then he asked the drummer, you know, the local guys were yeah. getting paid. The guys that they brought from the sticks had not gotten paid yet. <laughs> you think it'd be the other way around. Exactly. Step anybody. Well, yeah. now the girl was supposed to sing, What a wonderful day is today. Okay. You know. And the trombone player will give her the note. He will go, ah. <laughs> I can see where this is going. <laughs> from the orchestra, you know, and she goes, What a wonderful yeah. day. So now the conductor's there and he goes to, to the trombone player and he grabs his bass trombone and he goes, <laughs> I mean, it was like a, like a shit showing up to the bass. And the conductor's going, give it a note, give it a note. And he's like, oh. and the girl goes, And then when we come in, I could have sworn in my mind that he was going to play a half step off. Oh, no, no. He went for like the lowest note on his bass trumpet. <laughs> but again, the girl's so talentless that she couldn't figure out, I've been yeah. doing this for a couple of weeks. This sounds weird. No, she went. Yeah. <laughs> and when the band came in, she never found the key. So it was like, what a wonderful day is today. No, 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 no. I can see the conductor, like his eyes are like getting red and the guy and we're playing and it's like it's sounding like a disaster. Like she never found the key. And it's like, oh my God, this is going nowhere. So now the guy's pissed. Everybody's bad. So they had three chimpanzees uh on a on a like on a little a go-kart. No, no, on a, on a, on a mini bike spinning around and we will play. What the hell? We would play Let the Sunshine. So we would play the sunshine. And then the strobe lights will start going faster. We will start playing faster. And it looked like they were going faster, but they are still going at the same speed. It was an optical sonic illusion. But what happened? They're like a family. It was like a like a dad, mom, and they got into a fight. I mean, brush. And the chimpanzees are like fighting. Same, same night? Same night. <laughs> and the conductor is like, you know, and we're not going, eh, this he's like playing faster. And now the trainer is trying to tranquilize and he's getting beat and everything. <laughs> they finally take them off the stage. And, and the audience is like, like, what the heck is going on? So we are like, oh my God, this is going from bad to worse. So now Aladdin, the girl, again, is supposed to come and stop in the middle of the stage and like come out of the go-kart and goes like, oh, something happened. Well, they never cleaned the stage from the fight or the thing, so there was like an oil spill. And there was a sound effect that was like, and the go-kart stopped. You heard the sound effect, and the go-kart kept on going. 
intermission came and they announced the winner. That was all in the first act? El espectáculo de esta noche ha sido cancelado. They canceled the second half of the show. The show closed right there. He was like, oh my God. Oh, that's amazing. This went from bad to worse quick. So, yeah. How did they conclude? Did the U.S. guys ever get paid? Oh, I don't know. I never saw those guys again. We were done. I mean, like, we were... That was it. Just show... Yeah, like, I lost the pay for that day. What the yeah, heck? But still... You get the story. The story's better than the pay. But into this day, I'm going like, what in the world? <laughs> that had to be the ultimate debacle of a show. Like, the... Falling apart in slow motion. Everything from the girl, the chimpanzees, the Aladdin. So no, that, uh, that I'll, I'll keep it in the light side. Yeah, that yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk over some tequila. Oscar, thanks so much, man. Appreciate thank it. Thank you, guys, man. Yeah. Thank you, thank you so much. Thanks, thanks everybody at Lemur for having us out. Yes, thank Steve, yeah. thank Lemur, and uh, great stuff, man. Oh, thank keep you. it up, and I appreciate being here with you guys. Man, so fun. Thanks a lot, dude. Good. That was my talk with bassist senior Oscar Cartaya. Uh, man, what a great hang. Absolutely check out his record. Absolutely check out his record. I will have links to it at thebayshed.com backslash podcast backslash Oscar Cartaya. Uh, man, that was a lot of fun. If you are enjoying the Bay Shed podcast, please hit subscribe wherever you are listening to it. And uh, that's about all I got for this one, folks. That's all I got. I will catch you on the next one in a minute.